0: What is my dash of life? On my gravestone, it's going to be a start date, and there's going to be an end date. In between, there's going to be a dash. and What does that dash represent?
1: Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by Donor Search, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Ken Miller's story is one of personal transformation and professional achievement. After a battle with addiction and a period of incarceration in the lower 48, he returned to Alaska to remake his life, marrying his high school sweetheart and embarking on a career in the nonprofit sector. He served as the Director of Development for Beans Cafe, and then launched Denali Fundraising Consultants, a nonprofit fundraising and management consulting company located in Anchorage. Today, Ken is an influential leader and mentor in the field, serving on the boards, of the Association of Fundraising Professionals, the African-American Development Officers Network, and many others. We begin with a discussion of the place he calls home, what makes it unique, and what originally brought him there. And I want to ask you about so many things because of all the things you've done and the career arc and the life arc, but I have to ask you about Alaska. So you've been spending a lot of time, a big part of your life in Alaska. Um, what is it like for you to be in that place, which is so unique in America? How does that influence you?
0: Well, it was a great influence on me. I came up here when I was 12 years old up to Alaska. And one of the things that I realized right away was the opportunity because there's not a lot of nepotism or a lot of quote unquote history of families running things, as you may say. So I came from New York, which is rife with uh, cultures or individuals or groups that have had power for a long time. But you come to Alaska and all they want to know, can you work, can you do the job? And we don't care your background, we don't care your history, we don't care if you're black, white, male, female, can you do the job? And that was such a beautiful environment to grow up in because we also all suffered or dealt with the weather and the things that we did not have. When I moved to Alaska, the TV was three weeks behind. So any show that was shown in the lower 48, that's what we call it, the lower 48, we would get it three weeks, two weeks, or one week late, depending if it was CBS, ABC, or NBC. But great opportunities, great school. I went to a public school, Bartlett High School, wonderful school, advanced placement honors courses, um, just a great opportunity to, and, a, and a, definitely an eclectic mixing pot of individuals between the Alaska Natives, Hispanics, uh, Pacific Islanders, African-Americans, Caucasians, great mixing pot. I love it to death. And I think probably the greatest is the opportunity, just the opportunity for each individual. Can you do the job?
1: It sounds like that's a lot different from where you were born. You even made that distinction, not just in terms of the, when the shows appeared on TV, but you implied that there was a big difference between that and these established communities in New York. So you were born in New York. Talk about that a bit. What was that like for you?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't remember being born, but uh, what I do <laughs> know is that I was uh, born in uh, Glen Cove, which is in Long Island. Um My mother was a white teenage girl, and my father was a black man who was a pimp and a drug dealer. And unfortunately, my wife got caught up uh, in that as a teenage runaway and uh, was impregnated by my father. And I was born October fifteenth, 1962. I was mixed, and I was put up for adoption at birth. And I was adopted by a white couple, Uh, but then I went back into the system uh, three months later. I think they realized that there was something different about this child. (laughs) So um, I went through foster homes for six years in New York, in the Long Island area, Amityville, one of the towns that I lived in. And then I was adopted and moved upstate um, to an area Near the Catskill Mountains. i was
1: there till 12. That's a lot of moving around when you're a kid.
0: Yeah, well, the foster homes is because you go to multiple foster homes. You don't stay at one for a length of time. So I can remember probably five or six. And that was in a two-year period that I can remember because I can remember. Um, so that was between like four and six. I went to at least five maybe six, seven, eight. And I do remember distinct memories as a child. What you know and understand is that you don't have a mother. That I understood at an early age that I did not have a mother. And for a four-year-old, it's a real hard one to understand five, you know, four and five years old to understand that and understand why. And of course, I, I didn't and couldn't. And so when I had the opportunity to have a mother through the adoption process, I would have took anyone who said that they would be my mom. That's how needy and how much I desired a mother.
1: I wonder if that was uh, just something you just knew instinctively or if it was because you saw other kids, friends, and you saw their families. What was your sense about how your life was different? Well,
0: my sense was, is that, I, again, I was, I, 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 we had a social worker. I remember she had a, probably a 1965 Mustang. I just remember it was a Mustang and a woman. And I had a, another gentleman named Jacob. We went around together. I thought he was my brother. We went around together. We were like a twosome. And we would go to all these different foster homes. And the people, some of them were nice. Some of them weren't that nice. Um, but we knew that they weren't our mother. That's that's the key component. And so when the time came that uh, they indicated this couple were willing to adopt you, I'm like, let's go. Let's go. I'm ready. Somebody can call mom? Yeah. And I did understand that because you have to go in front of the court, even I'm six years old, and the judge asks you, do you want to be adopted by this family? We'd stay with them for, I think it was about a month. For three weeks and then go in front of the judge and they leave and it's just you and the judge and probably the social worker and they asked you want to and i said yes and um that uh, began that journey and so that's, I moved
1: a, that's tremendous time. pressure on it on a kid to be in front of a judge about anything let alone the course of your life how no what was that experience like no
0: that's not that's not because you don't know what a judge can do i'm six mm-hmm. years old
1: you don't I have any
0: judge, power. Believe me, I, I got to know what judges could do later on in my journey, but I didn't know that a judge did anything negative or mm-hmm. could cause you discomfort uh by being incarcerated. I didn't know that. All I knew is I went in front of this gentleman, and he was the one, probably the social worker told me would be able to make a decision whether or not you could live with these individuals for the rest of your life as your mother and father. And that's all I needed to hear. And so when he asked me, I, I sort of remember it. You know, again, I'm six years old. I sort of remember it. And I and I was like, yes. And then they bring the couple back in and they do whatever legal or formalizing that they have to do. But if I had said no, I'd probably want to run out a different door or I would never have seen them again. And so I said yes and uh, moved, like I said, 90 miles upstate. Uh, New York in the country. I was country, country, RD1. That was my address, Rural Delivery One. And the way that works is that everyone uh, on that road, the road, um, had RD1 because the mailman knew who everybody was and where they lived. So I moved up there and lived out in the country and um, just played in the woods. I was by myself. There was no kids within literally walking distance, and so, and I'm an only child, and uh, I enjoyed nature and uh, reading. Uh, had a had a, uh, in a in many ways a wonderful childhood. There were some other areas that weren't so wonderful, but I had a wonderful childhood
1: growing up in the country. It sounds like a great uh, way to begin a journey that takes you to Alaska, where nature is such a huge part of everything, um, but also the independence that you talked about with Alaska. It sounds like you were experiencing it even then as a kid, being the only kid there and finding your way. Um, I,
0: so, yeah. Let me just talk to that, Jay. I've yeah. always felt different. I've always felt different. And it was in a, mainly because of the adoption. I always knew that I was an adopted child with an adoptive family, that I did call mom and dad, but I always felt different. And because I felt different, I was very comfortable in many ways being alone because I knew I was different. And then there are things that indicate that you're different than uh, a lot of your peers. It can be academics, it could be looks, it could be performance, but it it makes you feel that you are different. So I go to school and I'm one of the two smartest kids in the school at grade two. I'm reading at grade level five, okay? Because they test you. And so me and one other gentleman, we were like the smart kids in the in the school. And then I was tracked because of my intelligence. But the key thing was I was the only black male in my whole school when I was in middle school. There was two black girls and there was me. So I, and I've always known I'm black, always. I tell people when I wake up, there's two things I know. I'm black and I'm male. That I know. And I've always realized that. And so I've always felt different because I grew up in predominantly white communities. I mean, all white, white and Jewish in New York. because There's a lot of Jewish people in upstate New York. And then there a lot of white people, whether I was in Anchorage, it's less than 5% blacks, or upstate New York, where it was like less than 1% blacks, at least where I was. So I've always felt different. I, and it doesn't mean I felt bad that I was different. I just felt different because, again, the adoption and, and somewhat the, the academics.
1: So what, what brought you from there all the way out west? How did, how did that happen?
0: My mom said we got to go. Um, I didn't have much choice in that matter. What happened was my mother was losing her job. My mother ran schools of nursing. She was the dean of schools of nursing. And back in the mid-70s, nursing was not what nursing is today. It, is, it was not as acclaimed. It wasn't as, as esteemed. And literally, there was nursing schools that were going out of business because they didn't need or want nurses to the extent. Now, it's, it's a whole 180-degree turn. But back in those. So they were closing down her nursing school okay? and she needed a job. So we looked all over the country because there's only so many positions who are dean of schools of nursing. And so we were trying to go somewhere warm. And i never forget. We put an application in for the uh, Panama Canal Zone to run the school of nursing at that college. And um, that didn't happen. And then she has a joke. She I remember she called me, said, Kenneth, she called me Kenneth. Kenneth, look at this. And it was an AGN, American Journal of Nursing. And in the back they had all the one ads. And they said Alaska is looking for something. Anch- Anch- Anchorage, I think it is. And so she put in and they sent her back a plane ticket. She came back and she said, pack up. They like, doubled her salary. And so um we moved to Alaska. <laughs> and I cried. Oh man, I was it was my I went to one day of eighth grade. One day, you know, now I'm, I'm going to puberty. I'm starting to like the girls. And I had my eyes. <laughs> and I was like, one day? <laughs> and the next thing I know, I'm in Alaska in September of 1975.
1: Wow. That must have been a huge transition for you. <laughs> Do you remember it pretty well, arriving and what it was like? Loved it.
0: Loved it. You know, something I haven't talked about is my dad was an alcoholic. And my dad was a violent alcoholic and he was violent to me. And literally when we left, we left from a motel because we were hiding out for probably the sixth, seventh, eighth time to get away from my father's violence toward me. So when that time came, it was awesome because we also got a chance to leave my father in New York. And, um, so for three months, it was just me, my mom, our two dogs and a cat. And I loved it. Cause it was the first time I felt safe and the first time I didn't live in fear and I blossomed, I loved it. And I uh, liked the, the, the kids. I, yeah. I, I remember it so well, like I can tell you a hundred stories about the first three months because it was a definitely a, a different world too. bigger school, It was it was different than definitely upstate New York, Um, the type of students, and um, also my interactions. Because remember, I lived in the country. Now I'm living in the city, so there's a bunch of teenagers because we're now in our teen years um, that I can you know uh, associate with, and uh, it was it was an eye opener, but it was. I always used to tell people it was the happiest time of my life until some of my last, you know, five to 10 years.
1: And so just the two of you and your pets um, making a new home out there uh, and a whole set of new friends, you are already pretty academically inclined. I'm sure that was still the case even entering into middle school. So as you started to make that Kind of mental journey as a as a young uh, young adult. Um, what were the kinds of things that that really excited you? What were you thinking about for the future? Because, of course, we're going to talk about your fundraising career and all the different things you've done professionally. But nobody that I know of thinks first about I'm going to become the head of a of a practice that does fundraising and helps nonprofits when they're when they're 13 years old. What was your image of what life might be like then?
0: I thought I'd be the the first black senator from Alaska. That was my thought in high school. I was gonna be a senator. I was always gonna be, I always thought I was gonna be a lawyer. I, I knew that. Um, and I thought I'd be a politician. And most most kids don't wanna grow up to be a politician, but I did.
1: See, what was like, the attraction yeah. to that and and why, why move away from it? What was the initial attraction?
0: <laughs> um, I had always admired you know, certain presidents. I was John F. Kennedy. Yeah, I, had a, I had a book when I was a small kid with John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King and and different individuals. Plus, it was the ability to impact people. And you know, for a lot of years, I was told that I was special, that I had these skill sets and academically. Um, I and I, I, I just talk. I just talk real. I was attractive. I was non-threatening as a black man. Now, I don't have any tats to this day. Okay, and I'm good-looking. I'm, I'm serious. I'm intelligent, and I can articulate, and I'm smart. So, people had been telling me counselors and other individuals that man, you could, be the, you, you could be president or, you, you know, I just thought Senator, as far as I wanted to go. But let me just rewind about the academics because this is important because sometimes we don't understand or know, you know, where does this come from? When I got adopted at age six, because I'd gone through foster homes where education wasn't that important, I could not read, I could not tell time, I could not tie my shoes as a six year old child. And so the first thing that my mom did was teach me how to read with phonetics on three by five index cards, never forget it, cried every day because I wanted to play. And she's like, no, what's (laughs) T-H, what's (laughs) P-H? You know, learn phonetics. And then I fell in love with reading, fell in love with reading. And so that opened up so many worlds for me And then I just was precocious. So I had these skills, sets, and I had people that were telling me that I could. One of the difficulties that I find in our society is that a lot of people steal people's dreams away from them. But people were uplifting my dreams or my aspirations from an early age. I've had a lot of allies. I've had counselors. I've had people. I've had family members.
1: So you must've found some of those there as, as well, because the middle school yeah. years in high school yeah. is, is is a pretty you know tumultuous yeah. time.
0: Yeah, Mrs. McKenzie, I can, I can just go down. She was the counselor. Mrs. McKenzie, she was the head counselor and she didn't work with students because she was the the lead. So she just worked, When we had five counselors, six counselors. And I think it was my freshman or sophomore year. She told the counselor she had either saw my grades or saw something, and she said, "I'm going to work with this one, one on one. Just this young black kid in Bartlett High School, Anchorage, Alaska. And she, what she, did, what a good mentor or person that supports you does is a couple of things. It says bringing this information into your into your brain, into your intellect." So these are books. Now we got podcasts and, and video and all that. We didn't have that back in those days, but read these books. Okay, so she told me, you know, do some reading on the. Then the other thing is get on these committees. So as a high school student, I was on the curriculum committee for the Anchorage School District. I was on an, another. I went to uh, boys, boys, Anchorage boys, whatever. But I, I, Anyway, they exposed me. It's so important to expose people. And then to bring pe- people around to situations where they are saying, you do have this skills or value that you can go far. Because a lot of people don't have that or they're not given those opportunities. But she gave me opportunities. She didn't have to, but she gave me opportunities. And then I had teachers that that challenged me. My My biggest problem growing up in school was I was really I was more advanced than the other kids. So in first and second and third grade, I'm reading fifth and sixth grade in second grade. And but we're working on things at their level. So until I began being tracked. And I was tracked in, in middle school. It was difficult. I had a lot of behavior problems. I had a lot of behavior problems, period. Anyway, I had a lot of behavior problems because I would get done so quickly and then I would bug the other kids. And one of the things that's hard for us to understand is why others don't have or not at your level. And that's one of the things I've had to learn as even as an adult, to understand where people are at is where people are at and then support them where they're at because their style or method to reach the conclusion or the goal is different then my method, I have a very specific method of, of accomplishing tasks and doing things, but it may not be the same. If you're very artistic or very emotional or very, um, uh, yeah, let's just put it artistic, then that's not me. I'm a spreadsheet, bullet point, task driven person. And that's worked for me. And that's what I'm comfortable with. But you may be more, I, I'm I'm all about order. Anyway, I hope I haven't got on a tangent too much. but
1: No, no, that's very helpful because I know we're going to talk about mentorship, which is a huge mm-hmm. part of your life. Um, not only what you've received, but really what you've given. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a model for it because you have to be patient and understand where people are in order to help them. And not everybody's fed seat driven, just mm-hmm. like you said. Um, but it also strikes me that you said you talked about going far, which you've done. But the mm-hmm. first part was geographically going far. So it, it, now... For people who don't know this, in that day, because we were born the same year, mm-hmm. um, we didn't have the internet to guide us on which schools to choose. And if you were in Alaska, the first thought wouldn't have been, let me see, I think I'll go to Dartmouth, but that's what you did. So, <laughs> how is it that you chose Dartmouth? We it, it, we can understand why Dartmouth chose you, but how did you pick a place like Dartmouth and go all the way, very far away, to study there?
0: So, I, you start. I started the college process as my junior year. Let me explain how academics worked in in my house, which really, my house means my mother and I. My mother um, got her degree in 1949, which for a black woman coming out of Detroit was, and she got an RN degree, okay, from, I believe, Hunter College, 1949. And then she continued her education because she taught nursing for many years. And then went into administration. And in administration, you at least have to have a, at least have a master's. So she went to Columbia's Teachers College, which is one of the top schools of education, Chicago School and the Columbia School, like the, the two modes of education at the high level academics. And she went to Columbia Teachers College in New York City and got her master's in education, MED, and then was working on, well, did her postmasters, did a thesis, all that, and then was working on her doctorate during this time, okay, from Columbia. So, when it came time to go to school, school started reaching out to me as a junior. I, I, I checked all the boxes. I literally checked all the boxes. Okay, I'm athletic. I'm black. I'm um, from Alaska. I'm a National Merit Scholar. Da, 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 da. We, man, we can, if we get him, we get a lot. So I had a hundred, because I, again, I'm, I'm about to order, it. I'm about number. I had 160 colleges inquire, okay? And then, but when it t- came time for the colleges to choose and narrow it down, my mom was like, Ivy League. And the Ivies had asked me, so I had, so I narrowed it, and I didn't know that you like Didn't get in. I don't know what I I was thinking, but I only applied to three colleges. I applied to Harvard, Dartmouth, and Oberlin. Now, you must understand, I'm from Anchorage, 200,000. I hated cities. Hated cities. I used to visit New York City all the time, and I hated it. Hated it. Didn't like the noise. A lot of reasons. I didn't like cities. right? And I was very, very naive, very well protected, you could say growing up in Anchorage. And so I had reasons for every other Ivy League college except for Dartmouth and Harvard. Gotta do Harvard. Anyway, came time to um, get the answers and I was accepted to all three. And my mother asked me, which college do you wanna go to? And I told her, Oberlin. And she goes, that's great. What's your first choice? And so it became either Dartmouth or Harvard. So I said, I don't, I hate cities. I'll go Dartmouth. Plus Dartmouth was very well-connected in Alaska. There's more, we we sent more Alaskans to, to Dartmouth than any other Ivy League school, predominantly because of the ski team, and also, and Natives. Dartmouth was founded for Native, for Alaska, for American Indians, actually, in 1769. Um, and so there's always been that contingent coming from Alaska. So we usually come in 10 10 to 15 deep each year from Alaska. And so I chose uh, Dartmouth and um I was glad I did that.
1: Loved it. You you talked about being comfortable alone earlier which makes a lot of sense. But there you were, it sounds like a pretty unique partnership between you and your and your mom. And then you go off to Dartmouth. That must have been uh Kind of a big transition right there.
0: Oh, it was was
1: huge. I was
0: 17 years old when I went to college. And I had a jerry curl. Anyone who knows what that is knows what that is. I had a jean jacket that had all the heavy metal bands on it. Because I grew up loving heavy metal music. Remember I said I've always felt different. You know, I downhill skied, played tennis. But I had never seen a yuppie in my life or a prep in my life. And when I went there and saw the legacies and the preps, I had a problem with that. I had a lot of problems anyway. My freshman year, I had a lot of problems with depression.
1: Hmm.
0: Um I again coming off a tremendous tremendous amount of violence. Okay? My my last my senior year as a high in high school, we hid out. We hid out for my father. We hid out and so my last three, four months in high school, we're in an apartment hiding from my father. That's how I went off to college, hiding from my father, who I did not see for another two and a half years after them, which gladly, but I went off to college. I had a lot of problems. And then once you go off to college, you know, there's a thing called fraternities, And I began drinking my freshman year. I had, not, I had a half a beer senior skip day. That's all the drinking I'd ever done. And then I go off because that's very common. That's our social atmosphere in Dartmouth. And I went into the fraternity, started drinking, and quickly realized I had a drinking problem.
1: You talked about earlier being somewhat um, not isolated, but protected, I guess, in Anchorage, although that's a city by by any any measure, and certainly in Alaska. And Dartmouth is this. Supposedly, you know, serene environment. But there you were. That's the introduction to something that became a pretty big hurdle for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have any reflections on that now as you think about?
0: There's nothing Dartmouth could do. It's not Dartmouth's fault.
1: Right.
0: It's not. First of all, I, I have no, I always tell people there are no antecedents to my drinking. I'm an alcoholic. Because I'm an alcoholic. It's not because I was beat as a kid. It's not because of my adoption. It's not because of of, uh, going to Dartmouth and being introduced to fraternities. We all drank. 95% of the freshmen went to fraternities because that was our social. There's not much else to do in the Upper Valley, New Hampshire. Okay? And so I just, I didn't know I was going to become an alcoholic. The last thing I wanted to be was an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. Why would I want to be one? But my thing is I cannot control the amount I drink once I start. I can't. I literally cannot. And so I would drink to excess. And then I would do really dumb things under the influence of alcohol. And then when she'd throw drugs in, you know, this is back in 1980. Cocaine was not addictive back then. It was a different type of cocaine. That, That was our joke. But remember, we're a lot of rich kids there. I'm not one of them, but a lot of rich kids and powder cocaine was prevalent, at least in the, in the people I hung around. But I was into the uh, social scene and the fraternity, but I was very confused. I was very, very, very confused. And I was very naive. I was too young. In a lot of ways, I, had, I lacked in maturity. I couldn't even drive when I went to, to, um, went to college. You know, I had one girlfriend, barely, you know, when I went off to college. I was, and then I'm thrown into this environment where many of the of the uh, kids there, these freshmen or whatever, students there are actually very mature because they've gone to prep school and they've been exposed to a lot. You get somewhat protected up in Anchorage. I mean, we didn't have any gangs. We didn't have any hoods, really. We had some poor areas in Anchorage. But we didn't have any hoods, okay. So anyway, I went there and struggled, and, and academically I struggled a little bit too because I wasn't prepared. I thought I was smart, and I was in my chosen fields, it's your history and English, the, the social sciences, but when it came to math, and they start off with calculus as the as a, early, as math one. I struggled,
1: <laughs> but you made your way through Dartmouth. How how did that uh, how did that conclude for you?
0: It concluded poorly. I barely. When I left Dartmouth, I thought I hadn't graduated. I thought I was one class short because I didn't. Gra- I didn't walk at Dartmouth. You have to take what it's called summer term. I didn't take a summer term. You usually do it after your. Uh, sophomore year. And I didn't do it. And I thought I could get away with it. You know, I'd plead ignorance or plead Alaska. Didn't work. So they're like, you got to take a summer term no matter what. So when all my classmates were graduating and doing the walk, um, I was getting ready for my summer term. And I, I was I was a mess my summer term. And so I got out. I thought I was one class short. Plus, I owed Dartmouth uh, quite a bit of money, you know, student loan type money. Um and then I got it, 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 the long short, I got that cleaned up and I they they did give me the class. I was short because I had taken advanced placement in, in high school. Then I have my degree right on the wall. So, <laughs> and I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of the relationship because I didn't talk to Dartmouth for 20 years. Why is that? I was on the streets. I was homeless. That's why. And then I also I was afraid that I'd have to pay back the money. I didn't have it at that time, and I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I didn't get my diploma, which I have now on the wall, proof.
1: <laughs> so that's a that's a big gap where you had a lot happening in your life um, before you started uh, this journey in fundraising, where you've had so much impact. Mm-hmm. That's a big leap, and can you talk a little bit about that? Which part? Well, just how how that began. So you 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 exit Dartmouth, and then I, where I exit Dartmouth.
0: Where? My graduation present for my mother is my first treatment center. That was my graduation. I thought I was she was
1: she high. was still looking out for you, even from over there in Alaska. That's pretty far away. She must have been in touch with what was oh, happening. She knew.
0: She knew, of course she knew I was an alcoholic she knew I was having problems. Hmm. I mean, that was obvious. You know, when you call people up drunk all the time, you know, you, it it creates uh, difficulties. And then, you know, she would hear from other parties that, you know, Ken did this. And then I would come home for, you know, summer term or whatever. And I would go out, I partied and, um, you know, it caused a lot of friction you know, between my mother and I, my mother and her husband, because she had remarried. And so I got out and uh, came back to Anchorage because I didn't know where anywhere else to go. I laid on the couch for, I think, like literally a month, depressed, because mainly because I didn't have alcohol in my system or, or drugs. And then, you know, she took me to my first treatment center and uh, I got sober for two years. Stayed sober for two years and got into the corporate world, was doing wonderful.
1: And um, was this in sales at that point or what, what were you doing? Yeah. I've always been in sales. Always. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and sales takes a whole lot of forms <laughs> as yes. we know. Yes,
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. We call it fundraising.
1: Right. So, uh, so what, what was the, what was the initial corporate life all about? Was that
0: Kodak? It was great put on a suit, put on a tie and uh, find out where the pain or potential pain is for an organization and then provide a solution for X amount of dollars. And I was good at it, very good. At it. And um, so I did that for a couple of years and we're gonna compact this portion. I then relapse. Once I relapse, my addiction is so strong. My alcoholism is so strong that the only thing I can end up is being homeless. So for 19 years, either in prison, in jail, in treatment, or homeless, living in abandoned cars, abandoned houses, motels, that was a step up when I could get a motel, or shelters. And I did that for 19 years.
1: Where were you during all this? Were you traveling? Were you still in Alaska? What?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, you know, I get cleaned up and travel somewhere else and then go back into my addiction and be homeless there. So predominantly Seattle, Sacramento, Reno, Nevada, Jackson, Mississippi. Wow. And in that time, I did 14 inpatient treatment centers. I did three terms in the penitentiary. I spent over five years in the penitentiary. And I'm talking medium level custody penitentiaries and um so i have three felonies on my record one in washington and two in um two in nevada all drug related well all drug and all related and um and and that what got me you know to a point where you, know, you have to make a decision you know if you if you going to pivot or are you going to be in prison the rest of your life or you'll be dead and so i made a decision in 2004 and uh, that decision was to do whatever i need to do to change and i needed to change everywhere
1: this is a time for people who don't know it when a lot of those three strikes laws were out and if you was out and and uh, there's also a lot of debate about a lot of those laws that led people into the system which is probably beyond the scope of what we could talk about today although i'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on that um, but for you, when you got to that point, how did you, how did you both have a semblance of mind to get out? And when was, was there anybody who was there to, you know, as kind of your, your, your helper to make sure that you took the next step? Nope, nobody. You were all alone.
0: No, it was me and God. That's it. That's it. I'm in, the, I'm in jail. I'm lying on a bunk. And we had a conversation. And, uh, you know, the conversation very simply was just, just walk with me. Just yeah. And pretty much what what I heard. And this is me talking in my brain, but I can give it to a spiritual entity because I, I run it by a spiritual entity I call God. And all it very simply said was, um, I'll be there. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be painless. But you don't ever have to use a chemical that changes your perception of reality. Because that's all they are. Alcohol and drugs. Exactly the same. They're chemicals that change my perception of reality. Okay, and so I embrace reality. I deal with reality, and you know I'm at a position now where obviously I've been given back, but I had to, I had to work on the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual aspects of my life. And so the state of Nevada gave me three years to work on that. <laughs> and i did, but i did i took i took it and, and i worked on those i literally worked and i knew each of them wrote it down but in the the bottom is it's you say is it is it still a process am i still trying to get better no i'm very comfortable with me today i'm more about what i can i do to help others than to spend all the time because that can be very selfish i'm always working on me That's selfish once you've gotten to a point where your interactions with others do not create friction and that you're comfortable with yourself. And I'm at at that point in my life. So my thing now is to give out. What can I do to support you? What can I do to uplift you? What can I do to engender your dreams? And that's what I do. I do it all the time within my family and within the gentlemen I mentor and just the people I meet. the
1: best of my ability and this uh, uh, would almost certainly include people who also battle addiction because they're it's so prevalent it's it affects so many people mm -hmm. that uh whether you're talking to somebody about work or just family issues i'm sure that there comes a moment when you can uh help them to see this and and then to go through the same journey you went through
0: Um, Because i've been there It's hard for some individuals to listen to someone who hasn't experienced what they experienced. I can't, I can't resonate with an individual that's been through combat. I'm talking about real combat. Yeah, I've been on the streets, guns, knives, all that. Yeah, I've been there, been there, done that. Okay, violence, been there, done that. But I can't relate to that, you know, or I can't speak to that experience. But I can speak to the experience of being an ex-convict. I can speak to the experience of being on the streets. I can speak to the experience of being an active alcoholic and drug addict. I can speak to the experience of being a black man in fundraising. I can speak to the experience of all the things that I've experienced in my life. And you can look at me, and then what I can do is say, I was there, look where I'm at today.
1: Well, that's that's definitely what I want to talk with you about now, because you have done so much, mm-hmm. and a, a lot of people who have been through uh, the uh, you know incarceration in any form anywhere sometimes have found it difficult to find their traction again, even if they've made a kind of I don't know the, the decision and process that you've been through, but you you found your footing, and I, I guess uh, it was almost right away in fundraising, right, with Beans. What? How, how did you end up in this field after going through this journey and then uh, and then founding your own firm as well?
0: So I got out of prison in 2007. I could not get a job. Three-time convicted felon. The economy was having difficulties in 07, 08. And so I could do was get a part-time job in a warehouse. And plus my intellectual acuity was not there because I had not used my brain. Okay, So then I I, I went, worked in the warehouse and $10 an hour, I remember that, and then moved to Alaska and got a job. Again, that's what I love about Alaska. They didn't care if I was a three-time convicted felon. Could you do the job? This is my background. This is the way I carry myself. This is the way I dress. This is the way I look. And so I got a a supervisory position at the convention center. Uh, Ended up losing that job uh, because literally I snapped my Achilles tendon playing basketball and I couldn't drive, couldn't do anything for three months. So I got out. I was told there was a position as the executive director of Beans Cafe, which is a feeding facility in Anchorage, Alaska. So I went down there and went to talk to this gentleman. I said, hey, I'm here to interview for the executive director position. And he looked at me, he said, well, I'm the executive director. And as far as I know, that position is not open. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Um, he, but I do have a position as a development director. And I'm like, great, what do I build? I didn't hear a job, okay? I thought it was building something. He said, oh, it's the fundraiser. And I said to him, I said, oh, sales. And so I looked at his PL. I remember I looked at his cash balance asset. Can I take a look at those? I know financials. And I said, I'll raise this. I told him, this is crazy. I said, I'll raise this quarter of a million dollars in one year. He looked at me like, what? Anyway, I ended up raising a half a million the first year. Fell in love with fundraising. Fell in love. And I fell in love. Also, I mean, what's what? Man, what, what happens, Chance? is it that I went to work for a nonprofit that fed and sheltered the hungry. That's, that was, I did that for 19 years. I was on the other side as a client and now I have a chance to give back. Yeah, I gave back. I'd come in there at six o'clock, I'd open the place, come in there at six o'clock and work. At, At one point I was working seven days a week as a fundraiser. I was a one man shop to start off and then I had an opportunity as i gained success to hire and lead a team and was very successful. And then I was recruited to become a consultant, literally recruited by a foundation to become a consultant. They said, we think you're the best fundraiser in the state of Alaska. That's what they said, they the vice president. And we'd like to know if we supported you, would you? Oh, I've been doing it for like two years. But I, I, I got it. I got it. And again, I, I, I got it. And I'm methodical, self-taught, podcasts, books. I, I did it all. I learned quickly, one thing. And then I'm willing to try different things. And because I've tried different things, I know what doesn't work. And so now I'm teaching all this. But yeah, and uh, got involved and, and started the company in 14, coming up on 10 years. Very successful. And and just bless beyond measure.
1: The the um focus of the firm, you do a lot of work today with grant writing, with those institutional opportunities that are so fundamental and so difficult for a lot of nonprofits. They just don't know where to get started, they don't know how to build those relationships, uh, they don't know how to fill out the forms and keep the you know, keep people informed who have supported them. Is that the direction you imag- originally imagined for Denali? Or is that something that- Hasn't changed. Time
0: Hasn't changed. I, I, do, I literally, te- when I'm a, a fundraising consultant, there's two different worlds. There's grant and then there's fundraising. But we're going to separate those two for specific reasons. When I'm a fundraising consultant, I literally, I've probably made a 5% change since 2014. And I'm always open. Because there's a couple of new things that have come up, especially in the digital world. Direct mail hasn't changed one day. In my book, it hasn't changed one day. That's why I own it. And I teach, you know, I teach an advanced course on direct mail because I know some advanced techniques on direct mail. Okay? So I teach individual. I teach organizational requests. You can call them grants, but these are really organizational corporate requests. And then I teach digital, online, social media. So there's like three buckets that I work with clients on. And what my job is to teach their staff or personnel best practices to be efficient, to be effective. Because our limit is usually time. It's not dollars, it's time. Dollars can be a a, a portion, can only do so much direct mail. Because if you had unlimited funds, I would do a direct mail piece to every household in America. Literally, I would do that. And you will get something, believe me but I don't have that kind of funds and the return on investment won't be, or I won't be there. So that's how, that's what I teach. Three months, three portions, um, start off at $2,500 a month for three months. Did that for a year, which is not a lot. And so I've worked with over 130 clients in that 10 year period.
1: And I know you're still doing a tremendous amount now. Um, mm-hmm and you're also doing a lot of work with AFp with training others both mm-hmm. through mentorship and otherwise you've talked a lot about mentorship in different ways in this conversation I suppose even with your mom in a sense because she was working with you even on those index cards teaching you phonetics so I suppose that there's an influencer in all of our lives and it sounds like you started with that way back when oh, yeah. what's the role of mentorship for you now why is that so important and how are you Um, uh, utilizing that in your work with others?
0: So there's two, two components of that. One, I teach mentorship. There is a body of knowledge around how to mentor. And there's different styles of mentoring. So I teach, I do a class called coaching, mentoring and workplace sponsorship for the development professional. So that's one. And then the second is I mentor myself been mentoring for 13 years uh, but I started being mentored back in the mid 80s somebody told me to go up to the most successful people in Anchorage and ask them if they would mentor you I don't know where I read it but 1985 I did it talked to I remember Walter Hickel who was an ex-governor where it was in under Nixon Department of I think interior or something like that but anyway owned the largest hotel. And I went up there and asked him, called him up and asked them and we had lunch. And uh, but there's more sir. Bill Sheffield, Paula Easley, three of them in 1985. very, very influential. And so I started this one. I was 21, 22. But going fast forward, I began the mentoring, but I work with a very specific group of individuals, and that is young black men. period. I don't work with any women. I don't have the capacity. Number one, And number two, I just try to stay in that lane because I can talk to that experience for me as a mentor and work with black men because so many times we have not had the father figure there. That's the problem, and so many times we haven't had the black male individual, especially in our field, that we can look up to and say, "Hey, I would man, I'd like to be able to accomplish what Al- Alphonse Brown did," or uh, Richard Martin did, or Ken Miller did, in our field as Black men, because we're few and far between. Okay. You that?
1: Um, Do you imagine that changing? Yes. Do you see that yes. change happening?
0: Yes, I see it changing by the stuff I'm doing right now. I see it changing by the groups I belong to, AADO and men of color in development. Yeah, so I see that changing. In fact, I'm supposed to be at the board meeting right now as we speak. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well then, I better let you go. But I, but hey, I do ask so you, weird. I do want to ask you maybe one last thing, which is, okay, sure. Um, if you were talking to that that kid, you know, the kid who had just moved from New York to Alaska, what would you say to him?
0: It's going to be all right. That's What I tell him: You are loved, and it's going to be all right. You're not alone. My biggest fear, hands down. My biggest fear my whole life was that I was going to die alone. That's it. I was going to be alone. I'd always felt alone. And now I know I'm not alone. I have friends. I have colleagues. I have family. I have a wife. I'm not alone. No matter if if they all went, I'm still not alone. I have a God that I can talk to and run things by and know that I'm not alone. And I know I only have a certain amount of time on this earth. I know that and what am i going to do what is my dash of life on my gravestone there's going to be a start date and there's going to be an end date and in between there's going to be a dash and what does that dash represent for you ken what does it represent i will leave i've touched people and i'm doing things to touch people at a larger level hopefully this may and my thing is i always put out if you ever want to talk to me feel free jay put out my number no problem with that put out my email no problem i'm here to listen and i'm here to support or as i say engender dreams for men and a lot of women i've talked to you know but it would just be once <laughs> but i've talked to them so anyway i've just been, i'm blessed yeah, hopefully you'll be able to see that and understand that i'm blessed
1: well that's it for this episode of the philanthropy masterminds podcast Thanks very much to our sponsor, DonorSearch, the world leader in fundraising intelligence, and of course, our producer, Jack Frost. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the DonorSearch YouTube channel, or wherever you like to listen. And consider giving us a like and a positive review so others can find us too. Check out our live webinars and webcasts on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and come back next Friday for our next interview with another leader in the world of social good. Until then, this is Jay Frost. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.